You get the feeling with some people that they can't really see or hear you, that you're more like an accessory to them. They want to hang out with you. They love that you listen to them and care about them and hang out with them when they want companionship. But slowly you realize that they don't really care about you. This is especially true if your friend is an addict who is at a stage of addiction where seeking the high is an all-consuming pursuit and they never remember the consequences. Now with drugs, it can be easier to spot, but when your friend is a love addict, it might take you a while to realize that to them, you're a prop, you're an accessory like a handbag, you're an instrument for them getting what they want. And of course they don't notice or remember the consequences of their actions, but you do. And that just might explain why you've been feeling ripped off and resentful about a friend who's dragging you into their addictive behavior. My letter today is from a woman I'll call Carmen, and she writes, Hello, Anna. I very clearly have CPTSD. I was very unsupported emotionally as a child, and in some ways, physically as well. I've got the fairy pencil. I'm gonna circle things that I wanna come back to on a second reading, but let's go through Carmen's letter and see what's going on and if I can help her. We had a family business which I was forced to give most of my childhood to. I have a history of sexual abuse as a child and have experienced a particularly violent and abusive relationship as an adult. I'm not in that relationship anymore. I chose not to date as a result. It is what it is. Hmm. I find your channel very helpful and I now do the daily practice. Great. So she says, limerence is not my issue, but I'm struggling with a relationship with a friend for whom it's been a very, very long-term issue. Let's call her Jane. Here is my problem. Having been so unsupported, I really strive to be a good friend. I invest a lot in my friends in terms of energy, emotional support, and in trying to help them reach their goals. I have some close friends who really replace that piece of family and relationship I don't have. However, I don't ever want to be an enabler to destructive or self-sabotaging behavior. My friend Jane has always been in a state of obsession with unavailable men and has always wanted support around processing this. Processing. I met Jane 25 years ago at work. It was a fabulous workspace space with lots of young people. Jane and I had two co-workers, Mary and John. John was married and then divorced. Mary then confessed to us that she'd always had a crush on John. John was clueless about the crush. So several of us conspired to make them interact as much as possible. The storybook thing happened. She confessed her attraction eventually. They dated, fell in love, married, and had some beautiful cats and kids. Perfection. Jane has gotten into a pattern over the past 25 years. Jane is not the person who got together with John. That was Mary. So Jane, the friend, has gotten into a pattern over the 25 years. She meets someone not through a dating relationship, either work or socially through friends or activities is how she meets them and develops a crush. She obsesses over figuring out his relationship status. If he is with someone, it doesn't hinder her because maybe he isn't really happy, she says. I've responded in different ways to her, sometimes discussing ad nauseum the details of this man and the little bits of attention he gives her, listening to her schemes to interact with him more. I've tried to talk her out of it. I've gotten frustrated and tried to be more direct in saying she's wasting her time. I tried to point it out. It isn't progressing. <laughs> Occasionally, she wants me to come with her to a place this guy might be to accidentally or coincidentally 
run into him. I stop doing that, but occasionally she tries to get me to. Every now and then she tricks me into it. She keeps referencing John and Mary, how well that that turned out and how much I scheme to put them in the same place or have to work on projects together. So it's like I've set a precedent and now not performing for her means, I don't care about her possible relationship, she says. The accusation is hard for me because I want to be that supportive friend. What I'm wondering is, what is the healthiest way to support someone prone to limerence? Do I point out her pattern each time? Do I refuse to listen to the next new guy? Do I just smile and nod and let her ramble? I don't want to make her cling more to these guys. She develops a bit of a fairy tale thinking that the more impossible it is, the more magical it will be when they finally come together. So ironically, the obsessions I try and talk her out of seem to last a bit longer. I'll admit, I've not responded consistently to these situations. She is, in other ways, a very intelligent woman. She comes from a nice family and doesn't come from trauma. No family is perfect, but I observe her having a warm, supportive relationship with her family. We've been really close and talk about things very intimately. I'm not understanding why she's fallen into this pattern, so I feel at a loss as to how to support her in a way that doesn't just reinforce her limerence, since directing her toward treatment for trauma and PTSD aren't appropriate in this case. I'm confused, and I realize my CPTSD leaves me confused about this issue. I would be clear if she was addicted to drugs, for example. How I would support her would be clearer, and I wouldn't have the history of supporting John and Mary as a precedent. As an expert in limerence, <laughs> me, please tell me what's the healthiest way to respond to my friend Jane. I want to be loving to her. I'm so sick of this. I feel like my own CPTSD is interfering in me figuring this out. I don't want to be an unsupportive friend. Thank you. All right, Carmen. Uh, I've got you here. Let's go through this letter and I'll tell you what I heard here. Um, so you were really unsupported emotionally as a child, and I can see how you really prize that, like being there for somebody. And that means a lot to you, and it's really precious and feels irreplaceable. And you were forced to work in a family business. That's interesting. That's a little piece of trauma that we haven't heard about very often. So your whole childhood, you had to work. And then you've stopped having relationships as a way to deal with the fact that you keep ending up in abusive relationships. So. Actually, I'm going to sort of flag that for you and just be like, that's not a good way to deal with it. Maybe temporarily it is, but right now, if you're avoiding relationships just so that you don't get involved with bad people and you have enough recovery that you're writing this and it's been a long time, I would just say there's a piece of your life that really needs all this attention that's getting sucked up and worrying about your friend. And it's about your capacity to have closeness in a romantic relationship and choose well. So I'm going to encourage you to do that. All right. Limerence isn't your thing, but you have a friend, Jane, and she is, it's more than limerent, isn't it? I think it's a, it's like kink. Um, it's definitely limerence on her part, but it's some weird thing where it can't be through dating. It has to be through some external, you know, I see some guy at work or somebody's boyfriend, and then she schemes up this whole mental magical picture of how she's really the one who should be with him and it never works out, and you've been dragged along on this for years. Now, I just want to tell you, this thing where John and Mary, that you conspired to get people together who had a crush, um, you know, you get to own the reason why that's different. At the time, you thought it was a good thing in your judgment. 
what Jane is doing is not a good thing in your judgment. So where this is going is you get to be honest and direct with her about how this makes you feel and what role you are or are not willing to play in it. So forget John and Mary. That was what, 20, 25 years ago or something. Forget them. It has nothing to do with her. And if she accuses you of being unsupportive, get ready, sister, because when you start drawing boundaries on somebody who's in active addiction, they're going to be really mean. They're going to pull out all the criticisms in the book. They know the stuff that you're insecure about and they will say it. So, you know, get ready and get tough and get into friendships with people who can support you while you start setting boundaries on a relationship that may fall apart because you set boundaries. This is the sad thing. You know, actually the, the most supportive thing you can do for, for somebody who's in addiction is just tell the truth. You don't have to fix them. You don't have to make ultimatums. You can just say, look, I'm not comfortable when you're doing this thing. I just, I, I'm not going to participate. And so if it begins again, you can just say, Hey, you know, Jane, this is the kind of thing I just can't be part of anymore. So well, I see you Saturday. Great. See you then. Okay. No lectures, no criticisms, just you drawing boundaries on what you want to be involved in. And that way, whatever she's going to do, however this whole thing is going to play out in her life, she gets to have that. She just doesn't have you as her sidekick and confidant about the blow by blow with it because you don't want to anymore. And the more you can do that with neutrality and just like Make it about you just going, I just decided, yeah, I don't want to be part of this. And if she goes, why, why are you judging me? You could just be like, yeah, I, I, it doesn't feel good. I just don't want to do it. And you don't get into it. You don't fight with her. You don't try to prove anything to her. You don't try to get her to believe you. You just say what your boundary is. A boundary isn't just you saying what you want and don't want. A boundary is where you step back, where you don't tolerate something. And when you're not tolerating something, that doesn't have to mean you're standing there yelling right? It just means, okay, this is all I'm going to do, but I will see you next week. Okay. Or you don't have to see her anymore, but this sounds really yucky and it sounds really one-sided. This thing where she tricked you into participating is where she kind of lost me, where I was like, is this innocent? No, it's not. It's addict behavior. So she tricked you into coming along and I would just project upon her. She's not asking me. I don't know her. But this thing where she wants to talk about it and get you to be all kind of, oh, yeah, great, excited about it with her, that is part of the drug for her. That's part of the high, is being girlfriends all excited about some guy, which is one of life's sweet things, right? But she's stealing it. She's not really actually having it. You've tried telling her, look, I don't think this is going anywhere. You've tried to talk her out of it I've, and, you know, be more direct and say she's wasting her time. But just what I'm pointing out is everything that you've done is trying to get her to see that what she's doing is wrong rather than setting your own boundary, which is I'm not going to do this. Uh, yeah, she keeps referencing John and Mary. I bet she does. And you don't care about her possible relationships. And you can be honest and just go, yeah, not in the sense that you're talking about. I feel like you're kind of doing a negative thing. And um, I'm not really comfortable being part of it. So she's in other ways intelligent. Yeah, it's funny. If only intelligence protected us from addiction, but it doesn't. You know, some of the most intelligent people in the world have behavioral or substance addiction. So what your friend here has a behavioral addiction. So yeah, she doesn't come from a bad family. You don't have to. Um, I think that that's a misunderstanding that some professionals put out there, like all addiction is really trauma. I don't think that's true. I think even a rat can get addicted to a substance. Um, you know, some of us have a predisposition, it just seems like. Some of us have circumstances that lead to that, like somebody who 
takes painkillers after an injury. <laughs> it could happen to anybody. It doesn't have to be from trauma, but I think having trauma is an extra vulnerability that makes it harder to resist and harder to beat. So your job right now as a person who has had trauma is to stop being entangled with people who are walking all over your boundaries, making you feel weird, putting you in a position that you are being dishonest in order not to have to confront them. And you don't have to confront them. You get to say something nice. And I think that, you know, you, which is just, it's about me. It's just not what I want to do. So I hope that difference is clear to you. I have this list of something I call ninja boundaries. When you're with difficult people and you don't want to get into a big argument with them, um, and they're like, come on, you should do this. And what you want to say is, no, you're crazy. That's dangerous. You remember what happened the last time, but instead you're just like, no, sorry, got to go. Um, I'm off to this thing, but we can talk later. All right, have fun. Bye. That's a ninja boundary. It's a boundary that you set without anybody knowing that you're really doing it. So you're not giving them an opportunity to get in there and argue with you and manipulate you and hurt you and get you all dysregulated. You're saving your energy for your life. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.